that's going to be our main text this morning, is Psalm 51. So we'll, we'll be reading that in, in, in a few moments. <clears throat> it's good to be here this morning. It's good to be here to worship God, to remember His Son and the sacrifice that He made for us. I'm grateful to be able to do that with, with, each, of, with each of you. I'm grateful for the visitors that we have. Um, and we're, it's a blessing to be able to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ who we may not be able to regularly meet with, but it's a, it's a blessing to have, have all of you here this morning. <clears throat> There's a, uh, if, you, if you follow sports at all, of, of any kind really, at some point you've probably heard somebody uh, utter the phrase, or maybe you've uttered it yourself, but if you, if you play sports, you know, we were the better team tonight. Uh, we just didn't play like it. Normally, you know, it's the team, it's someone on the losing team, and they'll say something like that. We, you know, we're the better team, we just didn't play like it tonight. <clears throat> and, and you think about it, that's not true. If they're if they the better team, they would have won. So they're not, they're, by default, they're not the better team because they didn't win. And I understand why they say that, and maybe there are some cases, like the 2015 Kentucky basketball team that should have gone defeated where that's true. Um, but generally, that's not true. Generally, that's, you know, that's something we, that we say so we can kind of make ourselves feel better and detract from what the other team did. And it's, it's not, it, it's silly. It's not true. You're not the better team because you didn't win. And then we do this in our personal lives, you know, maybe in, uh, maybe if you do something that you're messed up at your job or in a hobby, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm better than that. <clears throat> but I think we also, we, I do this. I have done this. I won't speak for each of you. I've done this in my spiritual life, though, as well, with, with, my, with my spiritual failings when I've sinned. And that's a problem. That, that's, that's dangerous. And, and this morning we're going to talk about why it's dangerous and what true restoration, true forgiveness, true repentance looks like once we recognize our sin. So just a, a, a personal example, several months ago I stood up here and I preached a lesson on the parable of the, unfor the, parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with that, with that parable, it's where... Jesus tells this parable where there is a servant who owed this enormous debt that he could never pay to his master. He begs his master for forgiveness, and the master forgives him. The servant goes out and finds another, finds another fellow servant who owes him a small amount of money, and instead of, instead of demonstrating the grace and the mercy that the master had shown to him, instead of demonstrating that to the servant, he grabs him and he shakes him and he says, pay what you owe. And this is reported to the master, and the first servant is drugged to the master and is punished. And the point of that is, you know, what was he supposed to have done? He should have gone out and he should have lived like the master. He should have demonstrated the same grace and mercy and forgiveness to the fellow servant that the master had demonstrated to him. And we talked about how we're supposed to do that in our life and all of that. And I preached that sermon and I felt good about it. And then like a month ago, I went out and I did that exact thing. Uh, there was a situation where I was, I had been shown grace and then my attitude towards someone else in a somewhat similar situation was not gracious at all. Um, it was, in it was fact, sinful and, and wicked. And I, I recognized that, and, and I asked God for forgiveness, and I, I tried to make things right. And after that whole process, after I was thinking, I was thinking about what I had done, 
and you know, Reagan, you just preached about this a couple of months ago. You know, you're better than that. You're better than that. That was what that, that was what I told myself. So I'm better than that. And, and the connotation that that brings, the, the the idea that goes along with I'm better than that, maybe unspoken, but it's what I'm saying, is that you know, my true self wouldn't do that. That the person that I really am wouldn't do that thing. I wouldn't have acted hypocritically like like the real Reagan wouldn't have acted hypocritically like that. And what it does is it shifts that that idea, that thought, that shifts responsibility from Reagan to this fake Reagan over here that I create in my mind. This fake Reagan who's weak and who does the sinful things. But that's not me because I'm better than that. I'm better than that. And, and the the simple problem with this line of reasoning is that it's wrong. It is, it is completely and utterly wrong, and it's dangerous. Because I, quite literally, am not better than that. Because I just engaged in that sin. I did that. Not this fake version of me. I did that. If I were better than that, I would not have let sin rule over me in that instance. I would not have given in to, to that sin. I give up the right to claim the status of better than that when I do what that is. I'm not better than that. And, and there are some serious dangers that, that go along with this kind of attitude. First, I'm lying to myself. I'm lying to myself when I say that. I'm not operating within the reality that is my sinful and broken state. I refuse to acknowledge my responsibility and how deeply broken I am. And I think along with that, I assume that deep down I'm good enough on my own to not engage in that sin. And, and I therefore discount or completely ignore God's role in my purification. And, and, and really what I'm doing is I am ignoring, I'm, I'm trying to not think about and push aside this need for wholesale change in my life because well, I'm actually already better than that. That's not really a problem. That's not something I need to fix. That's not something I need to work on because I'm better than that. You know, yeah, the faith breaking up here did that for just a moment, but I'm better than that. I don't need to think. I don't need to worry about that. That's dangerous. So this morning I want to look at perhaps a more righteous attitude that we can and should and must have when we are confronted with our sin. And that's why I want you to turn to Psalm 51. So Psalm 51, the, the um, heading within Psalm 51 uh, says, For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And you can, you can look in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 if you want the background for this psalm. But just briefly, if you're not familiar with that, there's a situation where David's armies were out fighting battles, but David had stayed back in Jerusalem. And he's, he's standing on the rooftop of his temple, of his palace, not temple, of his palace. And he, he looks out, and, and he sees this woman bathing in her house. And he's, he's, she's beautiful, and he sends for her. Figures out, figures out who she is, and it turns out that she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his most trusted soldiers, one of his mighty men. And David, he sends for her, and he takes her, and he lies with her, and he gets her pregnant. And then to try, and then he goes through this whole process of trying to cover up that sin, make it to where no one would know about it. And that process ends with him having Uriah, his friend, his close friend the husband of this woman that he had taken, he, he has him killed. And God sends, the merciful God sends Nathan the prophet to David to confront him with his sin. 
and, and to get him to see and, and admit what he's done. And this psalm, Psalm 51, is David's response to that sin. It's his response to being confronted with that sin. So let's read it. Let, let, let's read Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. What is the first? What are the first things that David talks about in this psalm? What does he open this psalm with? Well, verse one, he opens it with God's grace, God's loving kindness, and God's compassion. God's grace, His loving kindness. Which, if you if you've been with, if you've studied with us for a period of time, we've talked about loving kindness. That is God's covenant loyalty. To the people that he is in a relationship with. His loving kindness, it might say steadfast love, it might say mercy, it's that word, it's covenant loyalty. So he, the, he opens this psalm with that, with God's grace, his covenant loyalty, and God's compassion. The entire psalm is going to hang, God, David's entire plea is, is hanging on these attributes of God. You know, these aren't just fancy Bible words that David threw in here because it sounded good at the beginning of this psalm. These words are grouped together elsewhere in Scripture, and, and, and in fact, they're grouped together in Exodus chapter 34. So if you want, we'll, we'll turn there briefly and look at how they're used here in Exodus 34, the situation that they're used in, because um, I don't think it's coincidence that David just happens to use these words. Um, I think there's a connection between these passages. So in, uh, at the end of Exodus 33, Moses uh, is on Mount Sinai with God. He's in the process of receiving God's law to deliver to the people. And Moses asked God for something. In verse 13 of chapter 33, he says, Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And then in verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. So what's Moses asking here? Moses is asking to be able to know God, to be able to see God for who he is. That's what Moses is asking of God. And God grants his request in chapter 34 with um, certain, certain stipulations for Moses' safety. But God grants his request. And when God passes before him, beginning in verse 6, then the Lord of chapter 34 of Exodus, 
Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So when Moses asks God, when Moses asks to be able to see God for who God is, this is what God tells him. This is what God shows him. He says, you know, you, you want to know who I am? I am a God who is gracious and compassionate, abounding in loving kindness for my people, ready and willing and wanting to forgive iniquity, but also one who will not leave the, the guilty, the unrepentant, unpunished. This is who God is. And it is upon these attributes of God that David is hanging his entire hopes here in Psalm 51, on God's grace, his loving kindness, and his compassion. And, and based on those attributes of God, David comes and he, he begs for forgiveness. He begs for cleansing, for purification. He says at the end of verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my, my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And again, uh, in verse 6, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He, he's begging for this cleansing that only God can supply to him. And that's important. He recognized that, that it's only God who can do this. It is only God who can cleanse him. His hope for forgiveness is not based on David's ability to do something about his sin. It's not based on David doing enough good things to make up for the sin he's committed. It's not based on how good of a king he's already been up to this point. It's not based on even on the thought that his sin is, is really isn't that big. That his sin is, is that is small enough that, okay, we can take care of this. I can, I can help. I can take care of this. It's not based on any of that. It's based on God cleansing him and God blotting out his transgressions. His hope for cleansing is based on the knowledge that God's grace is bigger than his sin. God's grace is greater than his sins. That is what that, that is the only thing that David's hope is based on. <clears throat> and the fact that God's grace is taking center stage and is greater than David's sin, that does not minimize David's sin at all. In fact, David does the opposite in this psalm, and he owns what he's done. He, he embraces what the wickedness that he has done. <clears throat> you read verses 3 in the first part of verse 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So he doesn't try to view his sin as not that big of a deal. He doesn't try to put his sin off on some fake version of himself. He says, I did that. I did this. Before you and you alone have I sinned. And, you know, we, we may, you know, thinking about the background of this psalm, you may think, well, and yes, David sinned, but David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against himself. David sinned against Judah. Everybody involved in that story, David sinned against those people. So how can you say against you, God, you alone have I sinned? It's not saying that he didn't sin against those other people. It's saying that when you think about what sin is and what sin does, at the most basic level and the most ultimate level, it is sin against God. We studied in our Genesis class, Joseph made a similar comment when Potiphar's wife tried to get him to lie with her. He didn't say, how can I do this, this thing and sin against Potiphar? He said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Because that's what sin is. It is me thumbing my nose at the creator of this universe and saying, you said to do this, I'm going to do things my way. 
That at, at, at the core, that is what sin is. So against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David recognize, recognizes how, how great his sin is, and he doesn't try to get away from that. He mentions hyssop in verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop is only mentioned a couple of times in the Old Law. It's mentioned in Leviticus 14 and in Numbers 19. In Leviticus 14, hyssop is part of the purification process for someone who has been healed of their leprosy. They were to go and, and do these things with the priest, and the priest was going to go through these rites, and then they would be purified. And hyssop was, hyssop was a plant that was used in, those, in that purification. In Numbers 19, it's, it's used as part of the purification process for someone who's been in contact with a dead body. And those are really the only two times that hyssop is, is mentioned, um, or what, just two of the few times that it's mentioned in the old law. Um, it has to do with cleansing from leprosy or cleansing from contact with a dead body. And you think about those two situations. Those are two of the, you know, in the old law, two of the most unclean situations that someone could find themselves in. And David says, yeah, you know, hyssop, the thing that's involved in that purification, I need that because of my sin. I need you to purify me with hyssop because that is how great my sin is. He's fully embracing his wicked, broken state and recognizing that he has ultimately sinned against God. And because his sinfulness is that serious, he understands his current standing before a blameless and a just God. In verse 4 again, against you, you only have, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Just, we read in Exodus 34, just as God is a gracious, compassionate God, abounding in, in, in covenant loyalty to his people, he is blameless and he is just as well. And these attributes are not pitted against each other. It's not like these are two different parts of God that are warring against each other. This is who God, all of these things make up who God is. This is all, this is all part of how he describes himself to Moses. And, and David brings this up because God's character is what is taking center stage in this psalm. God's character is what is most important in this psalm. It's not David's sin. It's not David's penitent attitude. It is who God is. And David knows God. And David understands that God is able and right to condemn him because of his sin. Because God is blameless. And God is justified when he speaks. So David understands that. He understands his current standing before this righteous God. But he knows that along with that, God is gracious and loyal and compassionate. And that and that alone is why David can hope, can, can hope for repentance or for forgiveness from a blameless and just God because that just God is also loyal to his people and, and is ready to forgive as he explained in Exodus chapter 34. So David has this request for, he's begging God for forgiveness of, of, the, of his sins. And then we have this request for renewal that he makes in verses 10 through 12. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. So David recognizes a need for a complete renewal after his sin. And he recognizes that he can't do this himself. The only way for him to have a clean heart is for God to create a clean heart within him. <clears throat> this idea of God creating something. It, we see it elsewhere in Scripture. And you may be thinking, yeah, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's exactly right. That, that is, that's a place where we see God 
creating something. <clears throat> the events of Genesis 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, and all that goes into that, is that something that somebody else could do? Speak everything into existence? No, this, this idea of creating is something that God and God alone can do. So, and David is, is begging God, create in me a clean heart, O God. This is something that only God can create this clean heart within David. And that, this is why it's so important for me to realize that I'm not better than that. This is why it's so important for me to recognize that, because I have to realize there's not a better version of me out there who can do better if he just tries a little bit harder. That the only way for me to have a clean heart and to grow past my sin is for me to submit to God and cast myself on him completely and, and allow him to create that clean heart within me. If I want to be able to stand in his presence, we see in verse 11, then I have to let him do this. I have to truly want him to create that clean heart within me. And until I truly want that, I'm not going to allow it to happen. He's not going to force it to happen. Until I let go of my arrogance, my self-reliance, God is not going to be able to create a clean heart within me until I stop thinking that I myself can take care of this, that I can follow the rules better. He's not, he won't create a clean heart within me. Until I stop treating temptation like it's not that big of a deal, he won't be able to create a clean heart within me. Until I remove myself from that relationship, or from that substance, or from that electronic device, or from that job, or from whatever it is, until I do that, he's not going to be able to create a clean heart within me. Until I want to be around God more than I want to be around the temptation, I can't expect him to purify me and to make me who I'm supposed to be so that I can stand in his presence. But when I stop trying to do that, when I stop trying to do that on my own, I stop trying to do things my way, and I allow him to, I, I allow his character, his spirit, when I allow him to change me, to change my heart and create that clean heart within me, what, what joy I experience, what joy I experience when I finally stop and I allow God to do that, is a joy that, that so far surpasses the pleasures of whatever sin, whatever temptations I was involved in, because it's a joy that can only be found when God is making me into the person who he created me to be in the first place. You know, if, if you've ever been in a situation where you, you, you're pretending that you're not, you're pretending you're someone that you're not, that can take a toll on you. And it gets to a point where, you know, that you just, you feel horrible. <clears throat> That's what we do when we, when we sin and when we try and fix things ourselves, when we refuse to let, to, when we refuse God's character and, and when we try and figure it out ourselves, we're not letting him turn us into the human beings that he created us to be, people who are supposed to bear his image to the world. But when I do that, there, there is great joy. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Now, I'll just ask you this morning, do you have this joy? Do you have this kind of joy that David is writing about here, this joy of God's salvation? The joy that comes from, letting, from allowing him to work in your life and change you. That there's no greater joy that we can experience in this, on this earth than, than aligning our will with the will of our Creator and our and, and, and this is something that he will have to continue to help us with. Sust uh, verse 12, and sustain me with a willing spirit. It's not the idea that, all right, God, thank you, forgave, you forgave me, you cleansed my heart, thank you so much, I'll take it from here. That's not, it's not the picture here. 
God, God will continue to sustain us. He's going to continue to change us, <coughs> purify us, and make us more like Him. So this is what God is doing for us. What's my response to that? What is my response to this kind of renewal? There's only one appropriate response to this kind of cleansing and renewal. And that response is simply that everything in my life becomes about the one who's, who's cleansed me. And you think about it, it makes sense. If I've given him my heart, what else is there? If I've given him my heart, then, then everything in my life is going to become about him. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, David, David talks about that. So let's read verses 13 through the end of the, of the psalm. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You were not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So what does the response to this renewal look like? Well, first I see I'm going to teach others about God. I'm going to teach others about this. I'm going to make opportunities to share with others what God has done for me and what he wants to do for them as well. You know, we, we talked about being purified with hyssop earlier and what that would have meant to, to the Jews under the old law. You think about someone who was cured of their leprosy. They would go through this purification process, and they could then re-enter Israelite society. They could dwell with God's people again. They would have been outside the camp, but now they can dwell with God's people again. More than that, they can dwell with God. They, they can go to his tabernacle or to his temple and, and worship him in his presence. If that happened to you, wouldn't you want to tell others about that? Wouldn't you be, be teaching other people about, about that if that's what happened to you? Well, this is what's happened to you. This is what's happened to me. Yet even more so. Because when, when, we, when we are forgiven of our sins and when God works in us, I can stand in God's presence even more so than someone at the tabernacle or the temple. The, 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 the veil has been torn into. I can be in God's presence because of His Son. I can have a relationship with my Father, the creator of this universe. That's something to share. That's something to share. So do we have this attitude? Do we have this joy? You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to properly evangelize until I understand the renewal that God has worked in me. And then... Then I will teach transgressors his ways. And so if you're struggling with evangelism, if you're struggling with this, then I would encourage you to, to take a step back and evaluate if, you're, if you are letting God purify everything about you. And if you understand, truly understand what that means, what he's doing in you. So that once we can have a better understanding of what's, what God is doing in ourselves, then we'll be much more equipped and much more eager and, and willing and ready to go out and tell others about that. And not only will I teach others, but I'm going to joyfully praise God as well. End of verse 14. My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. David wanted to be delivered so that he could praise God for his righteousness. So are you praising God every day for what he is doing in you? Why, why is this so important? Why is it so important that I give God my heart? That, that I allow Him to, to work in me? That I, I, I get rid of every last vestige of my own self-will and I will allow His will to change? Why is that so important? Why? Is, why? why? 
And verses 16 to 19 is because that's God that, that, that is all that God wants. That's all that God has ever wanted. God, God never wanted burnt offerings. The offerings are there because of sin. And he never wanted sin. He, he, he wanted Adam's and Eve's hearts. That's what he wanted from them. He wanted them to desire to be in his presence more than anything else, more than they desired to eat of that tree. That's what he wanted. But then after sin entered the world, God did institute sacrifices. So yes, on some level, God did want sacrifices because he asked for them. And you, you, we read through the old law. They're all throughout the old law. And David even says at the end of, of, of this psalm, he's going to offer sacrifice. He's going to offer righteous sacrifices. But sacrifices in and of themselves were not the end goal of the law. The end goal of the law was that Israel might see God for who he is, that they might see his character in the law and imitate it in their lives. It was to guide them to give God their hearts. And a sacrifice that was made without a heart that is desperate to be cleansed was a worthless sacrifice. We see prophets like Malachi chastise the people of Israel for this kind of, of worthless sacrifice, this kind of behavior, giving God a sacrifice but not giving him their hearts. But David recognizes here in Psalm 51 that God ultimately wants his heart. Because, that, because someone who gives God their heart, who allows him work, that is the kind of person that God is going to mold and shape into someone who properly bears his image. <clears throat> so I'll ask you another question this morning. Do you offer God empty sacrifices? Or do you offer him your heart? And uh, we don't have animal sacrifices under the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. But how, how do you approach God for forgiveness? How do you approach God for forgiveness when you recognize that you need that? There's a, 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 a sentence that I have said way too many times in my life. God, God, please forgive me for any sins I've committed. <clears throat> I, I've prayed that prayer countless times in my life. Um, I don't know if you, if you all have it here or not, but I have. <clears throat> That's not Psalm 51. David wasn't confronted with his sin and, and then turned around and said, Hey, God, please forgive me for, for any sins I've committed. That's not how David prayed here. That's not how Ezra prayed at the end of the book of Ezra, when, when he's confronted with the sin of the people. That's not how Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 9, when he is grappling with his sin and, and the sin of, of, of his nation. I don't see that kind of prayer in Scripture. It's one I've prayed too much. Just vague, God, please forgive me for any sins that I've committed. In Psalm 51, David was specific. David was open about what he had done. He owned what he had done. He doesn't tiptoe around the horror of his sin in a way that allows him to feel good about asking for forgiveness while never truly admitting the abject wickedness that he is participating in. Psalm 51 is not, God, please forgive me for any sins I've committed. In Psalm 51 is, God, I have done this, I have done this, I have sinned against you and you alone, and I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. That's what repentance looks like. That's what begging for forgiveness looks like when you've been confronted with the vileness of your sin. And, and so, maybe if you, like me, have found yourself praying this kind of prayer, God, please forgive me for any sins I've committed, maybe you're praying it over and over again, I, I would suggest, again, that you pause and you take a step back. And evaluate your heart. 
See, if you, have you actually let God, are you actually letting God in to cleanse you? Or are you just praying this prayer so that you can feel better without going through what is often a, a quite uncomfortable process of purification and cleansing? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart of God you will not despise. It's not until our hearts are truly broken by our sin that we will let God in like this. It's not until your heart is broken because of your sin that you're going to stop lying to yourself that you can fix it and you can do better on your own. We can't have this attitude. We have to submit to God with the attitude of not my way, but your way. Not my will, but your will. And when that is the case, then I will desire God's spirit. Think back to verses 10 through 12. I will desire his presence. I will want his character to replace mine because I know that is the only way for me to be made whole. That is the only way that I will ever be the person that God has created me to be. Someone who bears his image. So what, what's, what's the, the, the application? <clears throat> Uh, maybe you're already thinking of application in, in your own life. I have to seek that relationship with God. I, I have to want that. I have to want relationship with my Father. And the wonderful thing is that if I want that, I'm going to be able to have it. You know, you know ha having that relationship with God is not a is, is not you know a lifelong quest where I have to search and dig and, and, and struggle to understand and figure things out. Matthew 7, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. I have to want that relationship with God because He wants it with me. and he, He's standing there. He's ready to run to me when I recognize and submit I need, I need that relationship with my Father. Seeking this relationship with him involves talking to him and listening to him. And listening to him. You know, back when, when I was when I was a teenager and I wanted a relationship with Mary Catherine, I talked to Mary Catherine. I listened to Mary Catherine. That's how you form a relationship with someone. But I have to do that. I need to talk to God. I need to listen to God in His Word. And, and the more that I'm doing that, the more that I am in His Word. Mark talked a lot about that this morning in Bible class. How we have, we need to be in God's Word. The more that I'm there, the more I'm going to learn about his character. And the more that I learn about his character, the more that I'm going to start to see where I fall so short of that. And when I see that, that is him showing me what needs to be pure, what he needs to purify in my life. That is him showing me the parts of my life that I need to let him into so that he can work in me and make me not that way and make me like him. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to beg him to cleanse me. I'm going to listen to the wisdom that he pours out to me in his word. And I'm going to live according to that wisdom and the character of my God. And I can't figure that out myself. I can't, I can't stumble upon the character of God and luck into the character of God. I, I have to, as, as God displayed and told Moses of his character in Exodus 34, I have to listen to him and what he's telling me his character is. And I need, need to work to imitate that in my life, recognizing that, that I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. That I need him to help me. With, I, I need him to do that in me. That's the only, that, that, is the, that is the only time when I will be able to reflect his character, when I reject my way of doing things, and I allow God to work, allow God to work in me.
every one of us who has sinned has broken our relationship with God. We, we read throughout Scripture that, that the way that the way that you mend a relationship, the way that two separate parties can come together and, and unite is through a covenant. And, and the covenant that God wants to have with us, that the, the way of mending that relationship with us, he, he's made that possible through the blood of his son. We just remember that sacrifice earlier today. And, and, and we need to recognize that. And if you haven't entered into that relationship with him, you need to. We, we want you to. To enter into that relationship with God, and the way that, that we, the way that He has asked, that He has allowed for us to enter into that relationship with Him, is through baptism, submitting to Him in, bat, in baptism, which is the 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 imagery of I am I am completely letting everything go. I am letting Him bury me in the waters of baptism, and when I come up, none of that wickedness is going to be with me. I'm going to let Him. I'm going to continue to let Him purify me and sustain me rest of my days. So if you haven't done that, you have an opportunity this morning. If there's something else that you need, if you need forgiveness, if you need encouragement, whatever you need as you are trying to walk with God and become more like God, we want to help you with that. And, and we, we, we beg that you please let us know whatever we can do for you uh, right now you can come forward as we stand, as we sing the invitation.